Welcome back, everyone. This is lecture number 17. Today, we're going to talk about persistent infections. This is part two of our, our look at the patterns of infection. Last time, we talked about acute infections. Uh, this time, persistent. So, acute infection, remember, rapid and self-limiting, as shown in this uh, graph of virus production and disease in red. Persistent infection, in contrast, is long-term. It lasts the life of the host. That's a good definition because sometimes infections are long, but they end before your life is over. So that's what a persistent infection is. And these are stable infections. They're characteristic for each virus family, I would say, or even within the family. As we'll see, the herpes viridae, there are different members that have different kinds of persistent infections. And most of these probably begin as an acute infection. As you see, when we start talking about them, they begin as an acute infection, sometimes asymptomatic, sometimes symptomatic, which is basically never resolved. And the symptoms go away, may return. It really depends on the infection. But that is the way I like to look at it. They're acute infections that are never cleared, basically. Monday, we talked about a number of acute viral infections. Today, persistent infections, which are the one below, the three below here on this graph of virus production versus time. And we are going to talk about several different categories. One is a latent persistent infection. These are the herpes viruses. Latent meaning the genomes are present all the time, but there is not always virus production, as you can see here. There's not even always disease. For some viruses, uh, there's no, there are no symptoms, actually. These are asymptomatic infections. In mice, LCMV does that. In, in humans, JC virus. We produce virus almost continuously, but we don't have disease symptoms. And then there, there are persistent infections that are pathogenic. So here in this one, which could be HIV, for example, or, or measles, you have an initial acute infection, and then virus levels drop. Uh, for a long period of time, and then they rise at the end, coincident with disease and death. And we'll we'll talk about HIV/AIDS on its own in a separate lecture, but that's the classic example. So, in general, persistent infections occur when the primary infection is not cleared by the immune response. Virus particles, viral proteins, and viral genomes continue to be produced, although not continuously, depending on the pattern, as I just showed you before. Uh, but the viral genomes remain in some form. Even in some cases, there are no proteins. We still have genomes. And that may be the, the most common feature is that in all the persistent infections we're going to talk about, the, the genome remains, uh, may be active or not. As you'll see today, there, there isn't a single mechanism. There are, there are a number of different ones that have similar characteristics. But in general... I would say when a cytopathic effects are absent and host defenses are reduced, this is a formula for persistent infections. The CPE, of course, having no CPE leads to no inflammation and a poor immune response. We talked about that before. And as a consequence, the uh, infection is not cleared and you, you have a persistent infection. And many of these, as you will see, many of these persistent infections, immune modulation by the viral gene products is a key part of it, tamping down the immune response to allow the virus to persist and now be cleared. Very different from an acute infection. So here is a, a table of persistent infections of humans. They occur in other animals, of course, but in most cases we haven't studied them as well. And the ones with red asterisks we're going to talk about today so these are the viruses in the left column, and then the sites of persistence uh, in the human, different kinds of tissues, as you can see here. Some, some viruses are in many different tissues, like human cytomegalovirus. Some are just in the liver. And the consequences. And, you know, some adenoviruses are persistent in people, and they, but they have no known consequence. I know, I know one person who is periodically gets conjunctivitis caused by adenovirus. Apparently the virus remains latent 
uh, in that person and periodically reactivate it. In some cases, there are disease consequences like AIDS or cold sores or, or various cancers. So we will talk about a number of these today, as you can see. A key part of persistence is viruses abrogating the cytotoxic T lymphocyte response. This is a key immune response that's needed to clear virus infections. Antibodies can help to restrict infection. I wouldn't say prevent because the, uh, the um, levels of antibodies, say, in your blood uh, get very low as you move away from the initial vaccination or infection. But the, the memory response is much quicker, so it can limit virus reproduction. The CTL response is important for clearing. Remember, the CTL is a CD8-positive T cell that will recognize a virus-infected cell by virtue of a viral peptide displayed on the surface of the cell via MHC, and that is recognized by the T cell receptor. Uh, the, the T cell then makes perforin and granzyme, which makes a pore in the infected cell and, and kills it by apoptosis. And so clear, very clearly important for recovery, and many viruses modulate MHC1. So the MHC1 system is shown kind of faint. Uh, here's on the top the CTL uh, with the T cell receptor, and there's the MHC on the, uh, the infected cell. So this is now an, uh, an infected cell, and that's MHC1. So MHC1 is on most cells in our body. MHC2 is restricted to the antigen-presenting cells. And we talked about this before, but this virus-infected cell, the proteins are degraded by the proteasome. The peptides are transported through the TAP transporter and loaded onto MHC1 in the ER and then transported to the surface. And all these boxes are places where viral gene products antagonize. For example, the Epstein-Barr virus, protein EBNA1 antagonizes the production of peptides. Some proteins antagonize the transporter and some antagonize the transport of uh, MHC with the peptide to the cell surface. So those are all antagonisms. Here's uh, an adenovirus in even inhibiting transcription of class 1 mRNAs in the nucleus. But some of these are green, which means they're stimulated. So what, what is that about? Well, here, CMV and HIV proteins stimulate the removal of MHC1 from the cell surface. And it drives it to the proteasome. So if there's no MHC1, the cell can't be recognized as infectious. These uh, M viral proteins from HCMV take the proteins needed to load the peptide in, the precursors MHC1 and also calnexin, and downregulate, get it out of the ER and, and put it to the proteasome to get degraded. So these are just ways that MHC1 is modulated. So these viruses can escape CTL killing and persistently infect. Now, one, another way that viruses or, or mechanisms by which viruses uh, avoid CTL killing, besides the ones I've shown you, are what we call CTL escape mutants. We talked about antibody escape mutants, where an, an amino acid in an epitope recognized by uh, an antibody can change, and now the antibody won't bind anymore. Similar situation here. So the, the peptides that are... Uh, recognized by the cytotoxic T cell, right? The, uh, the little orange peptide in there. So the peptide is carried by MHC1 on the virus-infected cell, and the T cell receptor recognizes it. So there is a T cell receptor for every peptide. And there, so just like antibodies, uh, cells make all different kinds of antibodies specific for peptides, same for T cell receptor and peptides. And the peptides can change so the T-cell receptor doesn't recognize them anymore. So herpes simplex virus and hepatitis C virus do this. Here, for example, is um, a peptide being presented uh, by MHC. Um, and um, here on the bottom is the MHC. So the, the, uh, in this case, it's MHC2. So it's being presented by an antigen-presenting cell. And normally, the peptide would be recognized by say, the T-cell receptor on a CD8-positive T-cell here. But uh, if there is a single amino acid change in this peptide, it can abrogate proper binding to MHC2. Um, and it can also uh, abrogate binding to or recognition by the T-cell receptor on the CD8-positive T-cell. So that's a CTL escape mutant. It escapes being recognized by CTL because the peptide 
is either not binding or is not being recognized by the T-cell receptor. These changes could also affect proteasomal processing. Sometimes an amino acid change occurs in the protein, which prevents it being processed by proteasome. So the, the end result is the cell is not recognized as infectious, as infected, it's not lysed. And again, this, these uh, kinds of escape mutants arise for those two viruses. Another mechanism which is quite insidious is the T cell is actually killed by the virus-infected cell. So normally, right, the CTL kills the virus-infected cell. But in this mechanism, when the CTL engages an infected cell, the CTL dies instead of the target. What's going on there? That's pretty unexpected, right? That's another counteroffense to host defense. And, and it is mediated by this mechanism here. Activated T-cells uh, carry a membrane receptor uh, called FAS on their surfaces. And, and that's shown right here. And that binds a membrane protein called FAS-L, FAS ligand. When FAS on activated T-cells uh, binds FAS on target cells, uh, the uh, the receptor trimerizes and a signal it triggers a signal transduction cascade that results in apoptosis of the T cell that fast ligand binding here. So if if viral proteins increase the concentration of fast L fast ligand on the cell surface, any T cell that engages it dies, undergoes cell suicide, and HIV proteins uh, HTLV human T lymphotropic virus, cytomegalovirus proteins, they all have been implicated in promoting increased synthesis of fast ligand on the surface of the infected cell. So here's the infected cell. Now, if they're infected with those viruses, they make a lot of fast ligand. And when the CTL engages, it gets killed uh, as a consequence. Now, you may wonder, what is this doing? What's this pathway doing? Well, it's a way to limit immunopathology. You know, when... CTLs are made. You don't want them around forever. So when the infection is being controlled, you get rid of the CTLs, and this is a mechanism for doing that. So when they're no longer needed, and, and as you'll see in a moment, there are certain organs like the eye, the vitreous humor of the eye. You don't want CTLs in there because they will kill cells and cause bad things to happen. That's not very scientific, but it will destroy cells in the eye, and we don't want that to happen. So you have actually fat, high levels of fast ligand normally in your aqueous, your vitreous humor of your eye to prevent CTLs uh, from killing. So that is a normal process to limit uh, immunopathology. Now, as, as I've just been saying, some, some tissues have reduced immune surveillance, and this leads to persistence as well. This is quite interesting. Uh, it, many cells and organs differ in the, in the degree of surveillance, right? And that includes the central nervous system. Uh, the vitreous humor of the eye, that's the interior cavity, which is filled with fluid, right? Uh, these are devoid of initiators and effectors of the immune response. And the eye, as I said, has high levels of fast ligand to kill any CTLs that might get in. Why? Well, these areas, the CNS, the eye, could be damaged by, flu by, the, by inflammation, which involves fluid accumulation, swelling, ionic imbalances. So you don't want to have any inflammation at these sites. So they are particularly vulnerable. So the body's trying to protect them, but at the same time, if a virus gets in, it could be a problem. Uh, the skin in particular, and so these are these tissues, CNS, the eye, and uh, testes is another one. These uh, often get persistent infections. The, the skin is really interesting. It's, it's an extreme example. It escapes immune detection uh, in the case of papillomaviruses. I'm, I'm putting it backwards. The most extreme example of uh, this kind of evasion is papillomaviruses that cause skin warts, right? The, the virus particles are only produced in the outer terminally differentiated skin layer. And there, there's no immune response possible because there are no capillaries, right? On your outer skin, there are no capillaries, and that's where the virus is produced. And virus, dry skin always flakes off, right? And that's a good way for the virus to spread, you know, all the dust you see floating in air, those those are skin particles mostly, and they may have papillomaviruses in them. So it's a great way to avoid an immune response, right? The papillomavirus is rep reproducing in skin where there isn't any uh, immune system at all. And so someone is asking about, 
Ebola virus. Do you think I would not tell you about that? Of course, I've been telling you, talking about this actually for some years. And that is, you know, Ebola virus was considered a classic acute infection. You get infected, high levels of virus reproduction, a, a very defined course of disease. You either live or die, and that's it. But during the 2015 outbreak of uh, Ebola virus in West Africa, which was the biggest one we'd ever seen, we suddenly saw people apparently persistently infected. This was a report in New England Journal. Persistence of Ebola virus in ocular fluid during convalescence. There was, there was another a case involving a, an emergency room physician at Columbia. Same thing happened. So a lot of physicians went to West Africa to take care of patients. They got infected, unfortunately. They recovered because they got the right therapy. Came back home. Everything seemed to be fine. And this one patient in this paper, his eyes started turning a different color. <laughs> and he went for a checkup. Turned out to have Ebola virus infection. He had virus he had an inflammation of the eye, unilateral uveitis, 14 weeks after the onset of the disease, Ebola virus disease, four, nine weeks after clearance of viremia, right? So that's when they release you from the hospital. You have no more viremia. This individual had an eye infection caused by Ebola virus replicating, and we never thought this would, would happen. Never saw it. Why? Because so few patients were infected before, and the eye is an immunoprivileged site, and so the virus is in there, but in what state? We have no idea. It's very interesting. And that's that's the, the, the current outbreak is relevant to that. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, that, that outbreak ended, but there was a flare-up in Guinea in 2016 in West Africa. And that originated from a survivor who had virus in seminal fluid for more than 500 days. So apparently, so the testis is another privileged, immunoprivileged site where virus can hang around. And again, it may not be replicating. It may just be hanging around and not breaking up, which is really remarkable. I, you know, in my view, viruses don't just hang around. They break up and degrade eventually unless they're replicating. But as I'll show you in a moment, they seem to be um, not doing much. So I and testes, immunoprivileged site and uh, Ebola virus can go there. Zika virus also is found to be uh, in the testes as well. Now, there is currently a new outbreak of Ebola virus disease in Guinea. So that's the second one there. So the first one, 2015, was the first ever in West Africa. Never happened before. Tw over 25,000 infections. And now there's an outbreak of about 20 infections in Guinea. There's another one in DRC. But this one in Guinea, they have sequenced the genomes from four patients. And for the first time, it looks like this outbreak came from a previous human Ebola virus. Now, normally every outbreak of Ebola virus is a consequence of a brand new spillover from bats or from some wildlife source into humans. The outbreak goes, it ends, and then the next one is a new spillover. The virus doesn't stick around, but this one seems to have stuck around. Here's a phylogenetic tree of, of like 300 strains from the uh, 2015 outbreak and four genomes from 2021. So, here are the four genomes in like uh, light purple here. So the, the rest are all the isolates from the previous outbreak. And these are the four. You can see they are derived from the 2015 lineage. They haven't diverged very much. Yet it's over, it's six years, right? These four isolates differ by 12 mutations from the previous ones. So they're not a new spillover. They would be much more different if they came from another bushmeat source. And 12, if this thing is replicating, there's no way there are only 12 mutations between 2015 and 2021. So we don't know where the, these viruses came from, but the implication is that they they were in someone, maybe in testes, maybe in the eye. And did they stick around for six years? That's kind of hard to believe, but that's the implication with only 12 base changes. So there's something remarkable going on here, which will get sorted out. This is pretty pretty new stuff uh, happening here. But first example of a outbreak, which is um, apparently a continuation of, of a previous one. And as I said, the uh, 2015 outbreak was controlled. So this is very puzzling. So there you go. Many, cell, many viruses infect immune cells and they can persist in that way as well. 
for example, measles virus infecting antigen-presenting cells, HIV infection of T cells, monocytes, macrophages, and dendritic cells. So if you infect immune cells and destroy their function, you can persist because you're not going to be eliminated as well. Question one, which of the following are features of persistent infections? They last the lifetime of the host. Viral immune modulation is involved. Immune cells may be infected. They may occur in areas of reduced immune surveillance or all of the above. So I, I used to always talk about immunologically privileged sites in this course. And then all of a sudden, you know, in 2015, the eye became an obvious, it, it was in the news. The eye is an immunoprivileged site. And so the, that next year I said, see, I teach you real life stuff. Of course, there was never any doubt of it, but it's always nice when you have a uh, emphasis of something that you're talking about. And here, of course, this year we have it recurring just in time for this course, just in time for this lecture. 100% got the right answer. Yay. Good, good job. Right in time for the exam, right? It's everything. Well, this is correct. All right. So let's go over some examples of persistent viral infections like we did last time for um, acute infections. And measles is one of them. And you may say, what? Didn't you talk about measles last time? I did. It's an acute infection, but it has some persistent aspects. So, uh, you know, a virus can sometimes do both. Or as I said, many persistent infections begin as an acute infection. It's paramyxovirus, right? One of the most contagious human viruses. 2019, 207,000 deaths. Every one of them preventable with vaccination. You get lifelong immunity after infection and after vaccination. Classic acute infection in incubation period, shedding, virus production, disease, resolution. However, in about one in a million kids who get measles, they develop um, six to eight years later a disease called SSPE, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. This is a progressive degenerative encephalitis, 100% fatal, right? One in a million kids. Another reason to get vaccinated, right? We still don't understand what's going on here. You can find nucleoprotein particles in the brain. What is nucleoprotein? Remember, it's RNA plus the NP protein. We can find those in the brain, but there's no virus particles. And this nucleoprotein apparently can spread between neurons that are connected by synapses. So it can cross the synapse from one neuron to another. Why it's pathogenic, we do not know why it's there. But, uh, but the brain is an immunoprivileged site, right? So it's not being cleared. Plus, you know, the virus can get in the brain. We know that because there's encephalitis that occurs in one of the thousand kids. So somehow after it gets in, it's remaining and we have this disease. So that's an example of a rare persistent outcome of an acute infection. It lasts the lifetime of the host. The kids die. Uh, all of them die after infection. So uh, we have a question about Ebola. Are people concerned that the virus could get elsewhere? If it's really dormant, yeah, for sure. I mean, the case I just showed you, this one, this person came to the U.S. Uh, there were two. There was a guy in the ER of Columbia who uh, came to New York and had virus in the eye. Yeah, what are you going to do? You know, you know how you find virus in the eye. You have to put a needle in and take fluid out. They don't shed it in tears, by the way. They uh, have it in the fluid. And you're not going to screen everyone who has Ebola for virus in the eye. It's just not happening. You could do semen screening. That's pretty straightforward. Eye fluid is a problem. So what you do is when you recover, you have to be followed. And you basically have to check, check your temperature every day to make sure you don't have a recrudescence. But remember, you're not shedding. I told you this last time, I believe. You're not shedding. You're not transmitting Ebola virus until you develop symptoms. So that's the good part. So if you monitor your symptoms, you could check that out. All right. So the next virus persistent infection is, is by members of the polyomavirus family. We've talked about polyomaviruses before. Here's one that we've talked about SV40 quite a bit. You know, that's a, it's a monkey virus, simian virus 40, which is used to understand DNA replication and transcription and many other things. Here it is in the upper left. But this is a family of related viruses uh, divided into three genera, different viruses in them, you can see. Uh, and the asterisks are polyomaviruses that infect people. Uh, so there's Merkel cell, TSP, um, JC, BK, 
And then we have, uh, all of these are human viruses. This is These are all isolated from Wookiees. Did you know that? I, I say this every year. Nobody smiles or laughs. It's um, it's just unfortunate. No, they're not from Wookiees, but the name <laughs> comes from the, the combination of these two. WU is Washington University, which is where one of them was isolated from a patient. And KI is the Karolinska Institute. And so virologists have senses of humor. So they decided to call this uh, genus Wookiee polyomavirus. And human polyomavirus six and seven. Okay, so what's the story here? Every one of us is infected with some kind of a polyomavirus, okay? You're infected at a young age, you get it from your parents, and over 90% seropositivity in human populations. And which ones? You know, all of these here with the red asterisks, those are the ones that can infect you. They infect a variety of organs, including the kidney, the intestine, the respiratory tract. There seems to be, in some cases, continuous low-level reproduction, virus production. There, sometimes there's bursts. You can find in some people up to 100,000 particles per milliliter of urine. So it's very likely that some of you are peeing out polyomaviruses. I always say, remember that next time you go in a public bathroom and you flush the toilet or urinal, that makes an aerosol, you know. So you're going to inhale someone else's polyomavirus. This is probably not a problem, but uh, toilet flushing is a aerosol-generating procedure. We have no idea how they persist. They're replicating, but apparently not causing problems unless you're immunosuppressed. It's a common theme we've come across in this course, right? And so one example is a disease called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML. This is a neurological disease. So people being tra treated for multiple sclerosis, they, one of the treatments is an antibody, a monoclonal antibody called Tisabri. It is an antibody to, uh, I think it's an antibody to B cells. And then it tamps those down and that reduces the MS symptoms. But that's also immunosuppressive. So a certain number of those patients develop this disease where a polyomavirus that they have in them starts to reproduce in the brain and causes disease because apparently it's not being limited by uh, the immune response. The immunosuppression is the issue. Anyway, uh, we talked, I talked with a, um, a clinician in, um, in Denver some time ago about polyomaviruses, if you're interested in learning more. Wookie viruses. All right, another one, hepatitis B virus. We've talked about this a lot, the virus with a weird genome that has to be repaired and that undergoes reverse transcription before it gets out of the cell. We've talked about this a lot, but now we can talk about the disease. This is a virus transmitted by exposure to blood, which can happen at childbirth, which can happen if you get a transfusion with contaminated blood, which still happens in places. It can happen by sex. It can happen by intravenous drug use, tattooing, or in a hospital even, depending on where you are. Yes, tattooing. Uh, you have to be very careful. You can get a number of viruses from tattooing. One year... It was a guy in this course sitting in the front row who was, you know, 100% tattooed. And he always wear T-shirts. <laughs> and he said, he came up to me after that lecture. He said, I take offense. You know, I go to the right tattoo parlors. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you do. But you have to be careful. You don't want to get, well, you know, hepatitis B can kill you. but um, And you can be treated, but you shouldn't get it in the first place. Anyway, the main target of this virus is the hepatocyte in the liver, of course. Persistence doesn't happen in everyone. Interestingly, 95% of adults resolve an acute infection, right? Your first infection comes in, it's an acute infection. Most adults can take care of it, but newborns have a problem. Only 5 to 10% resolve. And so, you know, if a baby gets it during childbirth, uh, they can be infected for life. Of course, they have no say in their acquisition. Their mother is infected and they're getting it very much like Kids get HIV AIDS from their mother during childbirth. Here's a map of uh, viral hepatitis B in the world. 257 million global estimated cases. These are people infected with hepatitis B virus. And, you know, America doesn't have a lot, but Africa, uh, the Western Pacific, you know, Australia, lots of uh, hepatitis B in certain parts of the world. And so... A number of these people will go on to have serious disease. 
here's the pathogenesis of acute and chronic or persistent. So sometimes I use persistent, chronic, and latent interchangeably. They more or less refer to a, you know an infection that goes on for your life, lifetime. Here's acute hep B. You get uh, infected, and this is weeks post-exposure on the x-axis. And then on the y, there are various things we're measuring, we're looking at. Protein, viral proteins, and we're looking at antibodies, and we're looking at viral DNA, and alanine transaminase. That's a liver enzyme. should not be in the blood. Normally, it's not in the blood, but if you have liver damage, then you can find it in the blood, uh, as you can see here. So this is everything in the blood here. So we have increases in hepatitis B surface antigen. We have increase in DNA, but that all goes down. Right, the red S goes down, the HPV DNA goes down, eventually the ALT goes down. So you have a little chron um, acute liver damage and then you recover. And then you have antibodies, right? And, and symptoms are just in this defined area. So classic acute infection, right? Most adults can clear the infection, not many kids. Here on the right is a chronic infection. 5% of adults, most children less than a year old go on to chronic infection. You can see, that uh, weeks post-exposure, we have a, a period of symptoms, which is begins and ends. But then the, the viral protein goes on forever. Uh, the, the liver damage continues. The viral DNA is elevated forever. It doesn't go away. That's the chronic hep B. And, you know, these, these patients don't necessarily have any symptoms, although they, they will certainly develop them eventually. What's really interesting, the virus is not cytopathic doesn't kill hepatocytes. So this is a perfect example of immunopathology, right? The cytotoxic T lymphocytes kill infected hepatocytes, but they never clear the infection. So they, they're always killing liver cells. And of course, the liver is wonderful because it can regenerate. But if you keep doing that forever, regenerating liver cells, eventually you're going to get fibrosis and eventually cirrhosis and liver failure. You just can't be regenerating your liver your whole life. And the T cells also get exhausted. That's a thing. <laughs> they, they don't function properly after a certain time. And uh, this is why now we can use checkpoint inhibitors because they get exhausted. They get exhausted also in, in cancers and we can use checkpoint inhibitors to reverse the exhaustion. And it's being looked at for, for hep B as well. So the disease is immunopathological. And here's the, the killer, hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, will develop after 20 to 30 years of chronic and often asymptomatic infection. So you really don't know what's going on here, uh, but then eventually it can wreck your liver, liver cancer, basically. So someone asked, why do children have a lower recovery rate? Does it have anything to do with liver function? I think it's because they have you know less mature immune systems and um, they cannot clear the virus, essentially, which where adults can do that. We have another liver virus, hepatitis C virus, a different family. Now, this is a Flaviviridae member, and this is a, the, the family that has West Nile and dengue, Saturday, yellow fever. So, by the way, it's called Flavi. Flavi is yellow in Latin because yellow fever virus, well, there you go. Yellow fever was the first member of this family because you know, when you're infected, your eye, the whites of your eyes turn yellow because you're jaundiced, also your skin, but mostly you can see it in the whites of your eyes. This is spread by exposure to blood also, contaminated blood, sex, uh, drug use, tattooing again. There we, there we have the tattooing <laughs> again. Also during birth can be an issue. 71 million people infected globally. Do you know what the most, the country with the highest prevalence of disease uh, in the world is, that would be Egypt. Uh, we have uh, we have Egypt here, one of the high uh, areas of, of infection, Middle East, of course, as well. So what happened in Egypt was um, 50 years ago, the, the government wanted to get rid of schistosomiasis, which is a parasitic infection. And so they were injecting people with drugs to treat that, but they didn't sterilize the needles. So they spread hepatitis C to most of the population. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? Reusing of needles. So at the time, this was 50 years ago, they didn't know about hepatitis C, but they spread it and uh, 
Now, I think 10% of the population has hep C. Now, the uh, and chronic hep C, the good news is there are antivirals, so now we can treat it. Here's the pathogenesis of, of hep C. So um, we have acute infection, hepatitis elevated, you know, alanine transaminase. We have uh, jaundice, right? The whites of your eyes turn yellow. Uh, and then uh, after three to six months, um, 60 to 90% of the people are going to develop a persistent infection. 10 to 40% will recover. 60 to 90% rec uh, develop a persistent infection. And that can go on for 30 years. Uh, 2 to 30% of those people will have end-stage liver disease, hepatocellular carcinoma again, and die 70 to 98% continue to have an asymptomatic persistent infection. And they don't die of it, but they can spread it to other people, of course, especially if they're intravenous drug users. Persistence occurs via multiple immune modulation mechanisms encoded in the genome, like avoiding uh, interferon, for example. So here is um, the graph here. So we have a couple of things on the y-axis. We have the viral RNA, um, and on the left, an ALT, the liver enzyme on the right. And in red are people with just an acute infection who clear it. So uh, RNA is the solid red line up and down in a couple of months. See, I mean, it, it ends. It's not, it's not quick. Acute doesn't necessarily mean quick. It just means it ends at some point. And then ALT goes up and down. But in the persistently infected people, um, the viral RNA remains at high levels, and the ALT is never goes down to baseline. So that's another one um, that is persisting. Now, as I said, and we'll talk about this in the antiviral lecture, we have very good antivirals for hep C. In fact, we, we can treat people with th uh, combinations of uh, three drugs and give them a 12-week course, and they, they're free of virus. It's amazing. You can't do that with HIV. You can keep the symptoms down, but you can't get rid of the virus. Nevertheless, um, the outbreak continues because not everyone takes the drugs. Not everyone can afford them. And in the U.S., we've had something called an opioid crisis, right? Um, misuse of opioids like heroin, fentanyl, you know, prescription opioids, methamphetamines, cocaine. And these are injected, of course, and they're using non-sterile needles. In 2017, there were 70,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S., but more importantly, the number of new hepatitis C infections has tripled since 2010, uh, with 44,000 people infected and 18,000 deaths in 2017 alone. Uh, and also hepatitis B infections are going up as well. Uh, 32 states are reporting increases in adults over 40 years old in 2017. So this is interesting because it is a drug addiction crisis that's leading to increases in infectious disease. Uh, and this is just absurd, of course, but not all of those individuals are going to get the antivirals that they need. Our next question is, which are shared features of persistent infections with polyomavirus, hepatitis B virus, and hepatitis C virus? What's, I think this is going to be all over the shop, you know? That's my guess. When it takes longer, it's usually what's happening. And you're all over the shop here. The only thing in common between these three, polyoma, HPV, and HCV, is that virions are produced. You know, the genomes are present but not expressed. Genomes are all present, but they are expressed. These are continuous production of genomes. Liver damage is not a polyomavirus feature necessarily, Right. Kidney damage is not for the hep B. That's good. Nobody got that. So it's virions are produced. In all cases, virions are being produced. Right now we move into a, a different category of persistent infections, which we call latent infections. And you'll see why we call them latent, but they're really just persistent infections. Right? In these cases, viral gene products that promote replication are not made or they're very low. And the virus, the genome is present. Of course, the genome is always present. The genome may not be always uh, replicating. Now, the cells that have the latent genome are poorly recognized by the immune system. That's why they can persist. Uh, and the viral genome is around. It's intact. And eventually, productive replication initiates again. And it, that's how they spread to a new host. If, you, if a virus goes into a host and becomes latent and not, never does anything else, it's useless in terms of maintaining the virus, right? 
You have to infect a new host always. The latent infection where nothing's happening has to be reactivated at some point. In other words, you have to make virus particles to spread to a new host. And now the state of the genome in these latent infections that we're going to talk about can vary. Sometimes it's non-replicating DNA in a non-dividing cell. Makes sense, right? I told you, I think, earlier in this course that when a viral DNA virus gets into a cell, if it's going to replicate, it has to stimulate cell division. So non-dividing cells like neurons, the DNA is not replicating. And herpes simplex and varicella zoster virus is in that state, non-replicating DNA in a non-dividing cell. We'll look at this in, in detail in a moment. So we can have autonomous self-replicating DNA in a dividing cell. In other words, it's separate from the chromosome, the cell chromosome. The DNA is replicating on its own. Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, papillomavirus, HBV, and, and Kaposi's sarcoma herpes virus all do that. And then an unusual case where the viral genome is actually integrated in the host chromosome and replicates with the host. In her human herpes virus 6, that's what happens there. And we'll talk about that as well. These viruses, most of the ones we're going to talk about now are herpes viruses. And we're going to start with herpes simplex virus. We've all been introduced to the herpes viruses, not just in my course, of course. Most of you have them, and you will have them for your whole life. Typical, classic, persistent infection. But you know, these are enveloped DNA viruses where the, the DNA is in an icosahedral capsid. We've talked about the portal, how the DNA gets in and out, and how it's assembled and so forth, how it gets its membrane. Over 80% of the U.S. is seropositive for herpes simplex virus, and we have viral genomes in our peripheral nervous system. Okay, peripheral nervous system. It's not in the brain. It's not in the spinal cord. It's outside of it. That's why we call it peripheral. I'll have some pictures of that for you in a moment. So millions of people have latent genomes in their nervous system without symptoms. Most of us sitting here, I have it. I never have any symptoms as far as I know. I probably shed herpes at some point, but I, I don't know. Many people never get any symptoms. I have herpes viral DNA in my peripheral neurons somewhere, I'm sure. And so do you. But 40 million people in the U.S. experience what we call recurrent herpes disease, cold sores, for example, as a result of virus reactivation. We'll explore that in a moment. There are two types of herpes simplex virus, herpes simplex 1 and 2. One tends to infect the, the oral cavity and two is a genital pathogen sexually transmitted. Well, they both can be transmitted during sex, of course. Sometimes they one goes down below and two goes above, but mostly there's a distinction. This is a well-adapted pathogen because for the most part, it doesn't debilitate the host. It causes cold sores or in, in rare cases, encephalitis, as we talked about not too long ago. Most of the time... Very little disease, yet able to spread very efficiently through the population. So, so sort of like poliovirus, a well-adapted pathogen causing a minimal amount of, of disease. So let's talk about the, the infection, uh, what is going on there. So we have, this is a case for herpes simplex virus, and we'll talk about the primary infection. So you're, you're often infected in utero or during birth. 80% of babies are infected that way because their mothers are positive. Most mothers are. Short incubation period, uh, the virus is entering the epithelial cells, mucosal epithelium, epithelium, right? The baby is infected in the mouth, for example. And the virus enters, reproduces in them. Look, we have some cell-to-cell -cell spread, and then the virus can be released from those cells and infect the sensory nerve endings here. This primary infection is usually in a parent but sometimes the kids can have various symptoms like fever, sore throat, lesions, etc. Swollen lymph nodes, anorexia, MLS. Anyway, the virus gets into the nerve and spreads by axonal transport to the sensory neuron cell body here. These are virus particles, these little dots here. And the virus um, is getting into the sensory neuron uh, cell body. There, it's going to become latent, as you will see in a moment. Uh, this can also happen in um, sympathetic neurons 
as well here, as you can see here, that the, the nerve terminus being infected, the virus is being brought up to the uh, to the neuron, to the neuron. Immune surveillance limits this infection, but doesn't prevent it. So by the time uh, the virus gets into the nerve body, the the immune system is beginning to control the infection, and then the the virus basically goes into hiding. Uh, so this primary infection lasts maybe seven to fourteen days. Uh, the particles are cleared. But you have this latent infection established in the peripheral ganglia, right? So this is the PNS. The central nervous system is off in the distance. And these are uh, peripheral ganglia collections of uh, nerve cells. All right, so let's look at now what's happening in these uh, these neurons. Here we now have a neuron. This is a ganglion, right? Many neurons in the collection. And we're looking at one in particular here. So here we have the viral DNA in the neuron of one particular nerve cell. And, and there, that's the nerve cell body and these are the axon and dendrite, right? There's an epithelial cell surface innervated by this nerve and that's how the virus goes from the epithelial surface to this ganglia. In the neuron, the viral genome is silenced. It's actually coated with nucleosomes and it's turned off by um, you know these epigenetic silencing mechanisms. And there are multiple copies of episomal viral DNA not just one is shown here, but multiple. Episomal means it's apart from the cell chromosome, doesn't integrate. And that's it. It can last the rest of your life because these neurons don't divide. So the DNA doesn't have to reproduce and it probably will live forever. And so that DNA is with you for the rest of your life, right? Herpes is forever. Drugs and vaccines cannot cure a latent infection. I get emails every day, as I've told you, from people who say, I am so grateful to Dr. So-and-so for curing my herpes on social media. Whenever I have a post about herpes, someone posts that. It's a scam. They cannot get rid of this viral DNA. Not yet. Someday we might with CRISPR, right? But not now. The only thing that's made in herpes simplex virus uh, infected neuron like this are latency-associated transcripts. These are uh, viral RNAs that don't code for anything, and they're processed to form microRNAs. No proteins are translated. And we think these you know, microRNAs can silence genes, and we think uh, the silencing is required to maintain the viral genome in the latent state, and there's probably some contribution of the host. Essentially, we don't really understand how this happens or, or why it's maintained. But we suspect, I mean, these, these microRNAs derived from the viral LATs, latency-associated transcripts, are essential for latency. So they're probably silencing something that's essential. But what it is, we don't know yet. What happens next? Reactivation. You know, at a virus meeting once, uh, some virologists had a rock band called Herpetic Legion. And they played for us. They actually videotaped them. You can find the video on my YouTube channel. And they called their concert reactivation because they hadn't played for many years. I told you virologists have a sense of humor. You don't believe me. <laughs> it could be geeky and nobody gets it, but go look at the YouTube comments. There are people who say, your voices are horrible. <laughs> what do you want for people that don't practice? So periodically you have reactivation. Virus is produced in this uh, nerve cell and it travels anterograde to the epithelial cells. Enters the cells, begins to reproduce there. So a small number of neurons in the ganglion reactivate. Virions appear in this mucosal tissue innervated by the ganglia. Sometimes you get cold sores or blisters. Not always. Not everybody gets a cold sore. I never had a cold sore in my life. I'm sure I have herpes there in my ganglia. And that's how you transmit infection. You can have virus shedding without a cold sore. So you kiss someone, boom, you give them herpes or your kid. That's how you give it to your kid. Now, if you have a cold sore and you're kissing someone, then you should have your head examined. You shouldn't do that. The immune response is slow, so it can't counter this. By the time the, the immune response kicks in, you've already shed virus. So it's just a race. And some people reactivate every month. They have a cold sore every month. Some never have a cold sore, as I said. Uh, some people actually don't reactivate, but it's quite rare. So where this is in type 1 herpes is the trigeminal ganglion, right on this, right in front of your ear, the side of your head. And you get um, a mucosal infection and in your mouth, right, or nose. And it's all innervated, as you can see here. So it brings the virus nicely to the trigeminal ganglion, 
on reactivation, it comes back out, you get a cold sore. And some people get sores on their lips or in their mouth or in their nose as well. It can be any of these areas, forehead, innervated by these facial nerves. Interesting, there is, um, there's a disease called trigeminal neuralgia where people have horrible facial pain caused by this nerve firing. And they actually have the, the, the ganglion removed to try and treat that condition. And that's how we learned year ago, years ago that this is where herpes simplex goes because people took those ganglia and they looked and they found virus in it. Okay, so that's what happens in, in reactivation, but the mechanism is uh, shown here. So we have uh, a number of things that can cause uh, reactivation. Unfortunately, my giving you an exam could cause reactivation because it stresses you. Stress is physical or emotional stress. Athletes, sunburn, you go skiing over spring break, you come back with a cold sore, uh, nerve damage, hormonal imbalance, steroids, it's that many things stressing you. So what happens is stress turns on the transcriptional program, which is normally quiet. Remember, here's the herpes transcriptional program. The virus has a transcriptional activator in the particle that turns on the immediate early genes, which are then made, and then they turn on the early genes, which encode the replication proteins, which then turn on the late genes, right? So this is all silenced in the neuron. Only the lat is made. But what happens in reactivation is this turns on again. And so what happens? Just figured out a couple of years ago. It's a very cool story. I love this story. So during latency, the histones associated with the lytic promoters, that is the promoters that I've just told you, immediate, early, early, and late, they are methylated and silenced. This is what I mean by being chromatinized and silenced by epigenetic modification. The histones are methylated. So that's what these numbers mean. Histone three, lysine number nine is methylated, et cetera. And that silences it so it can't be transcribed that chromatin is too tight. So that's why it's silenced. When you're stressed, you activate neuronal stress pathways. That involves activation of a neuronal kinase. The neuronal kinase phosphorylates an amino acid on histone H3. Serine number 10 is phosphorylated. That's what the P is right there. And it's right next to the, these repressive methylations. And it partially relieves the repressive state. So this phosphorylation, again, is done by a neuronal kinase that's activated by stress. Phosphorylates this histone. You now have transcription of all three classes of viral RNAs. That's called phase one. Immediate, early, early, and late. Very low levels, though. Not a lot, but enough to get VP16, which is a late protein. Without VP16, you can't do anything. And then once, once VP16 is made, then you have the full reactivation. You have immediate early, then early, and then late, which encodes the capsid proteins. And then you make virus. Isn't that cool? So it's all about partially reactivating the repression with phosphorylation as a, from neuronal stress kinases. And then VP16 turns on the real transcriptional program. So that's how reactivation occurs for herpes simplex. You know, this is all done in animal models, so... The caveat remains, maybe that's not what happens in humans. Persistence of herpes simplex virus in nerve ganglia requires which of the following? Continuous episomal DNA replication, low-level production of virions, silencing of all gene expression except LAT and microRNA, UV light stress or steroids or all of the above. So this is persistence now. Be careful. Okay, we have 20, which is good. Yeah, so you got it. 63% of you silencing of all gene expression except LAT and microRNA. So persistence requires that. There's no DNA replication. There's no low-level production of virions. That's a key point. Please remember, in between episodes, there's no low-level production of virions. The genome is completely silent. Now, that's going to be different in some other herpes viruses we're going to look at. But for herpes simplex, no virions. All right, another herpes virus, Epstein-Barr virus. Again, 95% of U.S. adults are seropositive, carry the genome. Most people get this in college. If you haven't got it before, it's called the kissing disease, spread in saliva. The genome resides in B lymphocytes. So this is different, not neurons, not peripheral neurons, but B lymphocytes. Most people are infected at an early age and are asymptomatic, but it can cause disease like mononucleosis, right? You get tired, 
and a bunch of human cancers, as you can see here. So here's the primary and latent infection. The virus infects epithelial cells in the oropharynx, just like herpes simplex, you get it from saliva. It can infect the tonsils as well. Particles then infect resting B cells, either subepithelial or in the in the tonsils or local lymphoid system. These B cells, the infected B cells, produce all the viral proteins and RNAs. They're actually stimulated to enter mitosis and proliferate. These, these B cells make antibodies. And they think they function as uh, B cell that produce antibodies. The, a number of them get infected, get latently uh, infected, and become essentially memory B cells as a result of virus infection. You know, so normally a B cell becomes a memory B cell after it's stimulated by antigen, right? But in this case, the viral infection does it. And th these are viral proteins that are produced and associated with latency uh, that are labeled here. Basically, one in 100,000 of these cells persist in the blood as um, these small non-proliferating B cells. They only make uh, mRNA encoding this one protein, this latently associated uh, protein transcript. And that's the long-term reservoir of uh, Epstein-Barr virus. And it's the source of uh, infectious virus. You can take lymphocytes from just about anyone take their blood and take lymphocytes and put them in culture and they'll make uh, Epstein-Barr virus. And periodically these are reactivated. Here we have a reactivation on the right here, persistent infection. And these latently infected B cells are periodically reactivated. They will produce virus and that virus will be shed. Here it's, it's shown infecting the epithelium of the oropharynx is coming out in the saliva. So it's, again, very much like herpes simplex. You have periodic reactivation uh, and shedding in saliva, except we don't really understand reactivation anywhere near as well as we do it for as we do for herpes simplex virus. So, in the, and the difference here, of course, is that the latently infected cell is the B cell as opposed to uh, the ganglia for herpes simplex. So the genome is a self-replicating episome you know, the B cells are going to divide somewhat, so this has to divide when they do. It's contrast to the neurons. Uh, only a limited number of viral genes are transcribed. These B cells, besides circulating, they, they will go to your bone marrow and lymphoid organs, so they'll stick around uh, for, the, for a long time. And they're invisible to the immune system. They don't have any visible proteins except for this one protein on the surface, which apparently is not seen by CTLs. So they're not killed unless reactivation occurs. When reactivation occurs, the cells that are producing virus can be killed by CTLs, but it's a race, just like herpes, and eventually the virus will win by the time the CTLs catch up. Another one, another herpes virus that causes latent infections is varicella zoster virus, VZV. Again, infection via saliva. It, it infects the epithelial cells in the upper respiratory tract. It actually makes a viremia now, which is different from, from the other viruses. Well, the B cells have can have virus particles in them, so you could consider that a viremia. But these are free virus particles in the blood. The virus can reproduce in liver, spleen, other organs, and you get a secondary viremia, right? Remember that paradigm that we talked about? And then in about two weeks, you get a rash here on the top right. That's your primary infection, chickenpox. I had chickenpox as a kid. All my friends did. We all got this. Also called varicella. And then they made a chickenpox vaccine so kids shouldn't get it anymore. Yeah, but I was around before the, the vaccine was available. But the problem here is that the virus goes latent in sensory ganglia, very much like herpes, but different ganglia. So the skin is innervated, of course, by these nerves. Sensory neurons, the virus gets in, goes latent in the sensory ganglia and stays there for many years. And at some point, typically when you're over 50, you can get shingles, which is this. The virus is reactivated, comes back out of the end of the sensory neurons, infects the skin. And it usually happens in a line, which is innervated by a single, dermato by a single set of nerves. And uh, I had this, um, in fact, I had this when I first started TWIV. I remember talking about it. You know, it's a little itchy and and eventually goes away. You could take antivirals for it if you'd like. And it can happen over and over. And now for old people, we have a shingles vaccine to prevent this. You know, I didn't get a chickenpox vaccine, but now I could get a shingles vaccine. And it's a really cool vaccine we'll talk about 
sometimes this virus can go into your brain and cause serious CNS infections. So that's why we want to immunize people. And in some people, it can be very painful. And um, so that's why we have a vaccine. Before the vaccine, almost everyone was infected. Chickenpox, quite contagious. 30% of those people end up developing zoster, two-thirds of them over 50 years later. In terms of latency, the viral uh, DNA is episomal. In the neuron cell bodies, two to nine genomes in one to 7% of neurons. It, you know, you don't need to know that, but I know some of you will want to know how many genomes and how many neurons. And there it is. This is not replicating. These are neurons, right? There is a little bit more uh, gene expression than we're used to so far for herpes and EBV, a couple of IE, E, and L genes, but not the whole complement for sure. And we don't know what triggers reactivation to give you shingles. We have no idea, except in, you know, the case of immunosuppression, that would do it. Cytomegalovirus, uh, again, high seroprevalence. This is uh, tra transmitted very much like the other herpes virus, viruses and saliva, but also urine and sex. The, the virus is shed in those fluids. And this one replicates in peripheral blood leukocytes and endothelial cells. This is a, a chart of seroprevalence with age. You know, you can see it goes up with age. More and more infections accumulate. And these are in different cultural groups here. You can say it. You can see it differs there as well. Primary infection, usually an asymptomatic or febrile mono-like illness, and you can shed virus and saliva in urine for years, um, and have no symptoms. Typically, that shedding is resolved by immune response, but you have lately infected myeloid cells in your bone marrow. So here, for example, uh, this common myeloid progenitor in the bone marrow can be latently infected. Uh, and that gives rise to monocytes, macrophages, and dendritic cells, and those can peri periodically reactivate and produce virus, and that's how you would spread it to someone else. Again, we don't understand mechanism of reactivation. The real problem here with CMV is um, twofold. First, organ transplantation. When we uh, give people organs, we have to immunosuppress them, and because everyone has HCME, uh, HCMV, um, it's likely that when you're immunosuppressed for your transplant, you're going to develop a big infection. And now transplant divisions in hospitals all have specialists who deal with HCMV uh, reactivations after transplant. But the other issue is uh, the virus can cross the placenta and cause multi-organ congenital defects and death. And here are the numbers. So if we have a 1,000 pregnancies uh, leading to live birth. We have 600 women who have CMV before pregnancy. Uh, most of them are going to have CMV negative babies, but six will have CMV positive babies. And eventually there'll be one or two babies with permanent problems. And then we have many women who do not have CMV before pregnancy. Most of them don't get it during pregnancy. Some do. And of those seven you know, five will have negative babies, two will have positive. So you see, it's, it's a one to two per thousand uh, pregnancies that lead to live birth, but these can be severe issues. So people are working very hard to understand, well, can we uh, have a vaccine that would resolve infection? Uh, what, what do persistent infections with EBV, VZV, and CMV have in common? These cells are essential for latent infection, may cause congenital birth defects, viral DNA persists as an episome, the factors governing reactivation are well-known, all of the above. Most of you got the right answer. Viral DNA persists as an episome. That's in common with these three. B cells, of course, only for EBV, congenital birth defects, HCMV, and only for herpes do we understand the factors governing reactivation. All right, one more herpes virus. Two, HHV6 and 7, agents of childhood rash. Sixth disease. You can count the other five childhood rash diseases. Um, again, most adults have antibody. Uh, this is we get from our parents, from respiratory secretions. The virus infects lymphoid, endothelial, liver, CNS, and salivary cells. And it becomes latent. Uh, for HHV6, these are the cell types that become that where latency is established for HHV7, CD4 positive lymphocytes. There's the child with the typical childhood rash. It's a mild disease of little pathogenic consequence. The reason I mentioned it is because the mechanism of latency for at least HHV6 is fascinating. The genome integrates into telomeres of the host cell. Here's the telomeric region of the human chromosome, right? The sequences at the end, which are repeated. 
so that, they, you know, with, as you age, they get chewed away, but you don't impede into the coding regions. And they're maintained by um, reverse transcription. I think we're going to talk about this next time. And the genome has telomeric repeats at its genome ends, and it integrates into the end of the chromosome. So about 1% of transmission actually occurs by the germline. You have in a family germline transmission. The virus DNA goes from parent to child, and then the child will reactivate and produce virus and spread it or pass it on to their children. So it's not in everyone. Just 1% of transmission is via the germline, but it's an interesting strategy for uh, latency and transmission. So let me end with this slide, which is a summary of is the estimated burden of chronic viral infection in humans. So here we have the number on the y-axis in millions. And endogenous retrovirus, that's everybody on the planet. Every human has an ERV, multiple ERVs. So this is everyone. And then you can see nearly everyone has all of these viruses, enoviruses, HHV6, 7, VZV, EBV, CMV, polyoma. Almost everybody has polyoma, JC and BK, adeno-associated virus, herpes simplex, and then it starts to go down, hep B, papilloma, hep C, uh, HIV is way down here. All right, why am I showing you this? Well, first of all, a lot of people have persistent infections, and we each harbor at least 8 to 12 of these but more because we don't, you know, all the viruses that are in us, we don't even understand how they're reproducing. And more on top of that, you know, our virome is on top of that. These are the 8 to 12 herpes and polyomas that we understand. But what it means is if you're studying a disease, you never have a controlled population that is uninfected. And so if you're just studying, say, diabetes or some cancer or some neurological disease, you can never separate the role of these viruses in that disease. You, you have to think about it. You have to understand the potential contribution of these viruses to whatever disease you're studying, but you will never have an uninfected control population. So you will never know if the virus that are in these people are impact, is impacting the disease or not. And I just want to leave you with that. Think about that because you'll see lots of studies in the literature. This gene is causing diabetes. You just don't know what the viruses are doing. Monday, we're going to talk about transformation and oncogenesis, how viruses cause cancers. <music>